It's FAQMYC. This is a weekend edition. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Katie Honan, and in just a moment, we'll be joined by Brian Stedden, who's now the senior advisor to the Adams administration on severe mental illness, and who drafted the legislation that became Kendra's Law as an assistant attorney general in 1999, after a young journalist, Kendra Webdale, was shoved into an oncoming train by a young man from Queens with a long history of mental illness. Stedden is here to discuss the Adams administration's new push to have more severely mentally ill people brought to hospitals with or without their consent to be evaluated by psychiatrists who can involuntarily hold them for up to 72 hours and to change the state laws governing who can be hospitalized longer term to include people who can't recognize their mental condition or take care of themselves, not just those who present an immediate threat to themselves or others. There's a lot to dig into here, but first, here's a brief message from Katie. Hello. FAQ NYC is brought to you by The City, a nonprofit newsroom that holds New York's powerful to account and shines a light on New York City's undercovered neighborhoods. And from now through the end of the year, every dollar donated to The City will be doubled thanks to a very generous matching donation. To power The City and FAQ NYC's essential local reporting, Donate at thecity.nyc slash give. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. Thanks, Katie. And with that, welcome, Brian. And let's jump right in with what might be the two big questions about this new plan. First, how is this different from what the city was already doing with police officers and others somewhat routinely taking people who appear to be severely mentally ill to hospitals for evaluations? And second, why is it okay to be pushing more people into being evaluated when, by pretty much all accounts, there aren't enough hospital beds, supportive housing options, or other forms of long-term care available for those people in need of that help? Okay, so let's uh, take the first one first. Um, this really is not different from our current practice operationally. There's nothing uh, in the directive that has gone out from the mayor that suggests that we're going to be, uh, you know, creating this new ambitious or aggressive sweep where we're going to have lots more cops out there looking for lots more people and finding more reasons to hospitalize them. I think it's really unfortunate that it's been characterized that way. This is simply about how we do the work that we have been doing all along, which is Um, You know, having our mobile crisis teams out, uh, figuring out ways to help people who they encounter, having police officers deal with situations that they will just kind of ordinarily encounter on their uh, standard patrols. And what we have been frustrated with in the way that work plays out uh, under current practice is that there are situations where we feel strongly that a person does meet the criteria uh, to be brought for an evaluation. That is, they are. a danger to themselves in that they are unable to meet their basic needs and they are exhibiting clear signs of mental illness. And those two things in combination, when you are unable to persuade a person to uh, accept a voluntary offer to, to receive a hospital evaluation, do give rise to legal authority to uh, have someone brought in, right? When, when it's apparent that they have untreated severe mental illness and are unable to meet their basic needs. And, uh, you know, in, in, in the work that is happening uh, now, it is often the case that because there is this misunderstanding of the law uh, and there is this pervasive belief that any kind of involuntary intervention must hinge on the person being 
violent or suicidal or engaging in some outrageously dangerous behavior, such as walking in a traffic, um, there are situations where people who clearly meet the legal criteria are left alone and sh shoulders are shrugged. And that's the situation that the mayor is saying is simply not acceptable. We have an obligation both morally uh, and legally in our authority as parents patriae um, to help these folks. And that's, that, that's the policy shift here. It's simply about getting the information to the officers and mobile crisis teams who are doing this work that in fact, you have more uh, uh, ability to help people than you may have realized because of this misunderstanding of the law. Cool. And then the second part there, there's this moral obligation. I, I'd just like you to break down what uh, bringing people in to have them then evaluated by psychiatrists accomplishes um, in, in the absence of beds and supportive housing and so on. Is that, That's been a criticism that's been raised since this has been announced. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one great frustration I've had in, in hearing so much of the reaction to uh, the mayor's plan is that it has been suggested or just assumed that this is Mayor Adams' big picture solution to what we do about the crisis of untreated severe mental illness in New York City. Uh, and it suggests that, you know, the mayor thinks that we can heal people simply by sticking them in a hospital for a couple of days without thinking at all about the continuum of care that is sorely needed and that is sorely lacking. In New York City, you know, when people tell us that the city has a long way to go to kind of build that continuum of care that meets all levels of need and ensures that people receive care in the least restrictive, appropriate environment, they're preaching to the choir. We know that we have done some, I think, some interesting and exciting things on that front, and we have a lot more to come. Uh, you know, this plan should not be understood in a vacuum. Uh, our uh, health and mental hygiene commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vasan. Uh, is leading an effort within the administration. Uh, I think you're going to see, certainly before um, we put out a, a new budget next year, you know, the, the, the first budget that the mayor did was really when we had just kind of come into office. I think it's going to be very interesting when people see what we have um, coming down the pike in terms of really important plans to push us forward, to build that system that we all know that we need. But in the meantime, to say that people who are in sore need of hospital care in a particular moment of time because they have an untreated uh, mental illness that is causing harm to them by allowing them to remain in the street, that we are not going to uh, do anything about that, that we're going to, you know, look, if, if we're going to just leave people on the street who are in need of medical care because um, we don't have the beds and we don't have the services for them, we should at least be honest enough to say that that's the reason we're abandoning people to the street. We should not hide behind this false excuse that we can't help them because the law doesn't allow it. Um, and so, you know, I think it's been overstated how many more people are going to come into the system through this approach. Uh, it, it, it's certainly not something we expect to lead to a flood of newly hospitalized people. Uh, I think in most cases, it's going to be about hospitalizing someone who was going to wind up in the hospital anyway, in pretty short order, because they were going to decompensate. So this is about compassion and care and recognizing that somebody, uh, you know, in that particular moment in time needs help. And we have an obligation to figure out how we're going to give it to them. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the work to create that great system of care continues. And, and uh, you know, I think when we are judged in the long term, people will see that we've done a lot on that front. Thank you for that. And I think it does clarify for for a lot of people who read the coverage and who, you know, watched the press conference, it did feel that maybe this was the middle of it, but it is, as you say, just the beginning. Um, and with that, I do have a yeah. question on what, what is the status of 
the training that the mayor discussed um, for police officers and, and EMS workers and other people who will be interacting with people on the street before they're brought in. And and then I have a second part, yeah. I guess. We answer that first part, I guess, the status, because that is a critical part of it. So there is a training component to what we are doing to get this message out to our police officers and mobile crisis teams that they actually do have authority to provide help to these individuals who don't recognize their own need for it. And um, the, the way we are incorporating that into the training that I should say that mobile crisis teams and police officers already receive about how to respond to these situations that they frequently encounter in their work, uh, we are enhancing that training by adding a really in-depth in discussion of this basic needs standard that has, I think, received short shrift. And so that's going to consist of vignettes where we're going to describe people who you know, may or may not be able to meet their basic needs. It's going to lead to discussion of those who are taking part in the training of whether there is enough here that's been presented to indicate that the person can't meet, meet their basic needs. And we're going to explore options in, in these situations in the training as to what might be done before resorting to involuntarily removing somebody to a hospital and in the way of coaxing them to recognize their own need for treatment. And that may actually mean you come back to them in a day or two and don't give up quite so easily and don't uh, say immediately that it's time to take that person to the hospital. So um, th that discussion of the fact that there is this option to help these individuals is what's going to be part of the training in a way it really hasn't before. And I guess the second part of that, you know, I know a lot of the concern and, and criticism of it is that a shortage of beds or or just not enough beds and perhaps not enough psychiatrists and the staff able to perform this. So my specific question is, I know during, at the height of the COVID pandemic, um, a lot of, I don't have the exact number, but beds that were reserved for this type of mental health work were turned over to COVID response. So I don't know if you know the status of yeah. turning those back over and if there will be maybe in the coming weeks and months, we'll learn about even additional hiring and then additional beds added. Yeah, so that is primarily a state function. Um, mm -hmm. I can tell you from what I've seen statewide, and I think half of these numbers are in New York City, uh, it's been reported that we lost about 1,000 beds that were repurposed to deal with the COVID emergency. And statewide, we've only gotten about 200 of those back online. And I know that's something that the governor's administration is working very hard um, to reverse, but that's not that's not a city government function. Right. I just didn't know if you knew, like, if there's communication, obviously, I know the mayor and governor in October announced this plan to add the additional 50 beds. I don't know if there was any information. Yeah, well, let, so let me just say something about those 50 beds, because yeah. I know it's kind of been reported that that seems like such a drop in the bucket uh, in, in relation to how many beds were lost. I think a detail that's, that's really important here that hasn't been understood is that those 50 beds are for a very specific purpose. They are long-term care beds, right? Those are going to provide 120 days, up to 120 days of care for individuals who are profoundly mentally ill and in need of that length of hospitalization. That is a very small minority of the total population of people who rely on psychiatric inpatient care. And it actually is a very significant number uh, with, in relation to the, you know, the number of individuals who actually need that kind of, uh, intense care. So it's, it's something we're very excited about. We think it's going to, um, make a real difference in our ability to deal with this very small number of very difficult, challenging and heartbreaking cases, um, particularly folks who have kind of taken refuge in the subway. 
You're right. I think this, um, because it's such a complicated issue and it's multi-layered and it's so many layers in terms of the treatment and care and every single person dealing with it has such a specific um, and and different course of care. I think that was to kind of try to summarize it all. It, it can be difficult, I know, but it doesn't really often do justice to all the work that's being done. Speaking of the complications, can you explain for listeners and explain to me how you properly pronounce the term anosognosia? <laughs> That's pretty close, Harry. It's, yeah, anosognosia is the pronunciation that, that I've always gone with. I've heard it done a couple of different ways. But uh, yeah, it's a very uh, important concept for people to understand in, in making sense of why there are individuals who as obvious, painfully obvious as it may be to everyone around them or in desperate need of psychiatric care, cannot recognize it. And it simply means a lack of insight. Uh, it, it means the person has an inability to recognize that they have a mental illness and that they have a need for treatment. And this is something that is uh, kind of a neurological deficit that shows up in about half of people with schizophrenia and, and, and severe bipolar disorder. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, from the perspective of somebody who has anosognosia, it's perfectly rational that they want no part of the treatment that's being offered because they don't believe they have the illness. And, you know, this is sometimes kind of casually referred to as the person being in denial. I think it's really important to understand how different this is. You know, denial is kind of a universal human defense mechanism. It's something we all practice. It kind of means you you know the truth deep down, but for whatever reason, aren't ready to admit it to yourself. That is not what's going on with someone with anosognosia. This is a neurological issue. The information that the person has in illness is simply not reaching the part of the brain that allows them to recognize it. And so when you suggest to them that they have this illness and need for treatment, um, they think it's you that has a mental illness. It's, it's as absurd to them as it would be if I tried to convince you that you had schizophrenia. Um, and so it, it speaks to why there, at cer certain junctures, is a need to make that decision for a person who isn't able to receive the information that allows them to intelligently decide whether or not they want treatment. So implicitly here, and I know this isn't really, it's, it's more of a change in focus, change in policy from the city and talking to psychiatrists who, who do these screenings and who, by the way, say they haven't gotten any uh, training or, or, or specifics yet from the city. Uh, well, like, I have to push back on that. Yeah, please do. Please. Yeah. So, right. So a, a directive has gone out that that all the agencies involved in doing this work have participated in crafting that states clearly, and we're just really kind of piggybacking on guidance we received uh, earlier this year from the State Office of Mental Health um, that makes clear that a person who cannot meet their basic needs as a result of untreated mental illness is a danger to themselves. Uh, and so we have very clearly gotten that message to the agencies that are involved in this work. And the training as to what exactly that means um, is something that obviously is not happening overnight. It's something we're rolling out over a, a reasonable period of time. But uh, you know, we're certainly not expecting anyone to take action on uh, a policy that they haven't been trained on. We don't expect this to lead to major differences overnight. So I know there's new training coming for police and other responders who, who, who may be encountering 
city workers who may be encountering That's right. people uh, in, in the street. This does seem a little chicken and eggy with sort of announcing this new approach before for all that's been done, um, perhaps that, that that that's political, but I wondered if you might want to uh, to speak to that and how this has been rolled out, particularly as there have been a whole number of headlines that have suggested lots of people are just going to be involuntarily hospitalized, held without their consent for what you're saying, I think sensibly, is not actually a dramatic shift in policy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was important to the mayor to make a bold statement that we care about these individuals and that, uh, it's, as the mayor said in his speech, it's, it's as a matter of city policy, no longer acceptable for us to see somebody in crisis, see somebody in desperate need and to walk by them and think we can't do anything about that. And so to kind of put that marker down, um, and, and say that, uh, you know, don't expect miracles. It's going to take us some time to actually, implement this and, and, and operationalize it, but this is our operating premise and this is how we're going forward, um, I think was, uh, you know, a, a really powerful and important thing for the mayor to do. And look, as you know, it, it's very hard on the street to differentiate between someone who's acting out because of mental health issues, as opposed to because of substance abuse issues. And, sure. and to use the mayor's example, someone shadow boxing without wearing shoes. If somebody is doing that because of drug abuse, um, yep. and going back to consent, there, there, there's no path to forcing treatment on them in New York. And there's a lot of indicators that forcing drug treatment on people is not generally productive. Um, so I'm hoping you can speak to how the city's mental health, severe mental health issues and uh, drug abuse issues intersect and diverge and what this means for this new plan. Yeah, sure. And I think it's really important here to maybe correct the record on what it is that actually police officers and mobile crisis teams are able to effectuate when bringing somebody uh, off the street in, in a situation like this. Uh, and I listened to the podcast you guys did a couple of days ago on this, and it was it said a couple of times that we're giving uh, authority to people who do this outreach work uh, and to police officers to have somebody hospitalized for up to 72 hours. That's actually not right. The only thing that the uh, mobile crisis team and police officer have the ability to do is have the person brought to the hospital for an evaluation, right? They are making basically what you might call a probable cause determination that this person appears to have a mental illness and appears to be a danger to themselves and uh, bringing them to a hospital for an evaluation to take place. And at that point, they are looked at by a medical professional, a physician under the current law, and in a clinical setting, they are more formally diagnosed as to exactly what's going on. And it's only upon that happening that the person can be admitted to the hospital or if they're brought to a, a psychiatric emergency program, what we call a CPEP, which we have 12 of in the city, then they can be held there for up to 72 hours. But it's right. only upon that finding that they actually have that medical need. Now, but, but in the 11 point plan, in, in the 11 point right. plan, right? It seems like yeah. you want to expand the number of medical professionals who could do this. And generally right now it's psychiatrists and psychiatrists I've talked to have pushed back very aggressively about that idea. Psychiatrists, of course, being, being medical doctors who, who can prescribe, um, yeah. but they don't want to have family counselor, marriage counselors, for instance, with other degrees able to make that much bigger, as you're correctly saying, determination after that up to 72 hour hold where someone is being evaluated by the psychiatrist who can end it earlier right. about someone's long-term needs. Can you, can you speak to wanting to expand that group? And obviously if you're bringing 
more mentally disturbed people in, uh, you know, there's a bottleneck issue if, if it is just medical doctors and mostly psychiatrists who are, who are then performing those screenings. So, Harry, I can speak to what we're proposing in the, in the, in the legislative agenda. I think it's important to mm -hmm. keep in mind that there is nothing in the legislative agenda that impacts the four action items that the mayor has laid out, the things that we think we can do now. So, but if you don't mind, I'd just kind of like to kind of finish answering your previous question as to how it plays out when someone is actually acting out based on a, a, a substance abuse issue rather than a medical issue. Uh, my my um, apologies. Yes, please. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. So, um, and then we'll turn to the, the next question, I promise. But even under the current policy, right, or the, the current misunderstanding of the law where we're looking for evidence that a person is uh, violent or suicidal or doing something outrageous, such as running into traffic, even in the, under that lens, you're going to have situations where you don't really know in the field whether that behavior is the result of a drug-induced psychosis or a mental illness. Uh, and so the only thing you really have to go on is that it appears that the person has a mental illness. And you know, that's going to give authority to have that person brought for an evaluation. But that's as far as that goes. Whether they are ultimately admitted to the hospital is going to depend on what happens when the person's uh, medical history is looked at. And maybe that drug is worn off a little bit and it becomes apparent whether that person has a mental illness or not. That's what's going to lead to hospitalization. I think that's important to note. Now, in turning to the question of uh, why we think it's important to expand the authority to perform uh, those evaluations in the hospital. Those evaluations as to the fact that the person has a mental illness and meets the criteria would not be expanded to um, professions that do not have just as much tra training as, as psychiatrists in mental health and, and, and mental illness diagnosis, right? So we're talking about expanding that to psychologists, psychiatric nurse practitioners, and licensed clinical social workers, all highly degreed professionals whose training in mental illness is really no different from a psychiatrist, except there is that medical component, of course, to psychiatrist training where they have, um, you know, the authority to make medical decisions that are not really being made at the point when you have someone come into a hospital and you're simply determining whether they have a mental illness that is likely to cause harm to themselves or others. So to limit that particular function only to psychiatrists when there are other professionals who could do it, that limited thing just as well um, really is unfortunate because it means the psychiatrists have to spend that much more of their time doing that work instead of being engaged in patient care. And we're not making use of other professionals who are equally qualified to perform um, that specific function. Are, are some of these psychiatrists medically stabilizing patients in this up to 72 hour window? And then releasing people who foreseeably won't keep taking those same medications? Is that an issue in your view? So in, if you're asking whether they are providing involuntary medications during that 72-hour window, there is uh, you know, a very specific process under state law for involuntary administration of medication. When uh, the determination has been made that it has to happen on an emergency basis, that is to subdue a person, um, there is a process that allows a, a, a doctor, a medical doctor, to make that determination. Certainly nothing in our bill would impact that. Um, but medications that are provided for therapeutic purposes, that is to help the person get better, cannot mm -hmm. be provided over a person's objection without a finding in what's called a Rivers hearing that the person lacks capacity to make treatment decisions. So that's a process the court has to get involved in and is less likely to take place in that 72-hour window. 
One question, Brian, I had, and it, it does speak, I guess, to something that the mayor brought up a few times on Tuesday when, when this was announced, is the use of like a FaceTime for someone in the field dealing with someone who's facing a mental health crisis to determine yeah. what to happen. Do you know, I mean, who will be on the other end of that FaceTime? Are they city employees? Are they contracted out? I know there's use of telehealth and telemedicine throughout the city for various uh, purposes, but I don't know if you have any information or details on that. I think that had also come up from some people. I'm curious. Yeah. The plan is to use clinicians who work in our H&H hospitals who oh, staff okay. this. And so we're working with H&H to bring that online. And, you know, I, I think it's really also important to keep in mind about that telehealth line that this is really designed. So ironic to me that this has been portrayed as a plan that's about getting cops involved in medical decision-making when in fact, you know, this particular part of the plan that you're talking about shows how much we are trying to get clinicians involved and de-emphasize the role of police. Um, and so th this is designed for the situation where a police officer encounters somebody on their patrol and there is not a co-responder team uh, handy. There's not a clinician on the scene as we want to happen in as many cases as possible. And so that officer has been uh, basically put in a situation where they have to potentially exercise their own authority under Section 941 of the Mental Hygiene Law to make their own independent decision about whether this person seems to meet uh, the criteria under the law. And as you can imagine, many police officers are uneasy about making those decisions. They feel like they are not entirely qualified to decide whether somebody has uh, appearance of a mental illness and whether they're exhibiting symptoms that suggest that they cannot meet their basic needs such that they are a danger to themselves. And this is a really, I think, a great kind of phone a friend opportunity where a police officer can get on the phone and potentially onto a video chat so that they can give that clinician and our H&H &H facility some visual information and get some advice, uh, get some, uh, you know, expert help in, in figuring out whether there's enough to go on and and determine whether it's possible to help this person, which the officer may very much want to do. So we mentioned Kendra's law in our intro, and I think this will be our penultimate question. Um, was, do you want to talk a little about that and uh, the role that AOTs do or should play in a, a continuum of care and how this new plan might impact those? Absolutely. So um, Kendra's law, uh, assisted outpatient treatment, um, is a remarkably effective program when utilized. Uh, it is very specifically targeted at the subset of people with severe mental illness who have demonstrated that they have great difficulty adhering to outpatient treatment that is prescribed for them. And so consequently re end up in this kind of heartbreaking revolving door where they are discharged from hospitals and, 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 and connected to treatment plans and connected to providers, often because of anosognosia, as we talked about earlier, they tend to disengage from their treatment um, and repeat this horrible cycle again and again, where they decompensate to the point where they wind up hospitalized. Often they wind up committing acts that get them arrested, and then they're in the cl clutches of the criminal justice system. And so where we have identified this particular pattern in a person's case um, by looking at their uh, treatment history and, and, and their arrest history, um, we can say, hey, let's, let's stop this revolving door. Let, let's, um, when we release this person from a hospital the next time, let's connect a court order to that 
outpatient treatment plan um, that really makes the system accountable to the person as well as making the person accountable to um, the treatment system. It's basically a mutual court order where we put ourselves on the hook as much as the individual to say, here's a treatment plan that the court has approved. And we have this mutual expectation that the person will stay engaged with it and that the system is going to deliver what's been promised. And, you know, it's important to note there's no punishment attached to the person's violation of this court order. It's not about them being in trouble. It's not kind of scary. You know, they're going to be held in contempt of court the way we might normally associate with a court order. Uh, a person's violation of it, that is their, their failure to stay adherent to the treatment, simply triggers a process where we can bring that person in for an evaluation and see how they're doing a little bit sooner, a little bit more proactively than we might otherwise be able to if they were not on um, this court order and we were kind of waiting around for them to exhibit signs of dangerousness to self or others. Here we can um, basically take into account in making that determination that this person has been told by a court that they really need this treatment to stay uh, safe in the community. The fact that they're not adhering to it is relevant information in, in deciding we're going to bring this person in for an evaluation. And as I said, this is a, a great, important, and effective program. And um, our frustrations with it have mostly revolved around the fact that there are people who meet these criteria, who have this history of treatment non-engagement, um, who would clearly qualify for help under Kendra's law, who are not getting it. And the primary reason we've identified for that is that the hospitals are, are um, really all over the map in terms of how much they have embraced operationally screening their psychiatric inpatients for AOT eligibility. It, it, the way it ought to work is that when a person is in on an inpatient stay, voluntary or involuntary, um, as part of their discharge planning, there should be a consideration of whether they meet the AOT criteria based on their history. And if they do, a referral should be made to our uh, Department of, of Health and Mental Hygiene, which operates our AOT programs, so that they can take the ball from there. And there are some hospitals in the city that do that routinely and others that don't. So we think we can strongly increase the numbers of people who benefit from this program by requiring, as part of this standard of care for hospitalized patients, that there would be this simple screening, not expanding the criteria another way, but making sure that all those who meet these exacting legal criteria are referred to the program when appropriate. Ryan, th thank you for taking the time to go through all this. To me, as I'm thinking this through, you hit all of these really naughty and difficult questions of consent. I think as you're working this out practically, that a lot of this is, you were bringing up with, with different hospitals handling AOTs very differently, mechanics. But yeah. if the idea here is is to stop this revolving door for severely mentally ill people between, let's say, streets and subways, and then jails and hospitals. Like, as the mayor said, we can't just stabilize people for a few days and send them back out into the city. We must build a continuum of care that helps people, patients, transition to step-down programs and eventually into supportive housing, end quote. Okay. Yeah. So prior to building that continuum of care, and I'm hoping you can use this to step back and give New Yorkers who are just maybe seeing the headlines or starting to take bits of this in, like the full picture, what is the purpose of having more people involuntarily brought in and evaluated if the state law says that they should be released once stabilized, even if they're not necessarily going to take their medication then? Yeah. So again, the 
point of it is compassion and care, right? It's simply a, a matter of saying we have an individual who right now is in an acute crisis. And the first thing they need before we can go, go any further is to get them stabilized in a hospital. It is an absolute abdication of responsibility and a moral outrage and something we should be uh, you know, held accountable for when that's the end of the, the process for that person, when they are stabilized with medication and then turned back out on the street to repeat that cycle again is something that's intolerable. But there's no getting around the fact that when a person is in that acute crisis, that's where we start. And um, I think what we're saying with this plan is we don't really have any, cho- any options th- th- that, are, uh, that are compassionate when we are faced with this particular situation and, um, you know, let's start by getting that person hospitalized. Let's get them stabilized. And th- then absolutely, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that the, the things that need to happen from there take place. And uh, I can tell you that we're working on that diligently. And I do believe we're going to get to a great place. Um, you know, in the meantime, the, our uh, Health and Hospitals Corporation has, has committed to making sure that people um, who come in to the hospital in, in this kind of acute crisis will stay there until they are, in fact, stable and, and will not be irresponsibly discharged. Uh, and so we're all working together to make sure that happens. And it's an ongoing process. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, I, I think really further clarifying this this announcement and especially knowing that there will be more announcements coming um, to address this major issue, but we really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Absolutely, Katie. I'm so glad to have this opportunity to set the record straight and so much of the the misunderstanding that that, uh, has been frustrating to us in the way this has been discussed in the last few days. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Brian. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of the city. A nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. From now through the end of the year, every dollar you donate to the city becomes $2. And you can do that by going to thecity.nyc slash give today. That's thecity.nyc slash G I V E. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find us online at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were me, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. A special thank you to our guest, Brian Stetton, the senior advisor to the Adams Administration on Severe Mental Illness. And thank you, our listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.